Welcome New Hope. If you'd like to pull out your outlines, we're going to take a look. As you know today, what's today? Palm, who said that? Palm Sunday. That's exactly what it is. Today we're going to take a look at the historical claim of Easter. I would highly encourage you to fill out some of your notes because we're going to be moving at the speed of light. The four Gospels record the greatest miracle claim ever in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let me be really clear, young people, listen up. Christianity stands or falls on the truth the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, for those of you who want to dive nine miles deep into this, all history, this man, Dr. Gary Habermas, is the world expert in the resurrection, the case for the resurrection. Now, I've got to tell you, he doesn't even use the Bible because most people he talks to are not sure about the Bible. So he starts with all of the secular sources and he builds his case completely from secular sources. He surveys the top 1,400 studies on the resurrection and he distills the eight essential irreducible facts that even liberal scholars or agnostics or even atheists agree with. And he builds it from there. So if you want to get it, get hold of it, the case for, uh, the, case for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I want to go with this in mind. I want you to put the hat on thinking you're at school, at university. The first thing you're going to face at school, university, or work, or with your neighbor who's somewhat skeptical, is they're going to have to establish the basis for historical claims. Now, before we look at the facts surrounding the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it is very important to agree the objective criteria by which the validity of historical events may be judged. For example, how do we know that, I don't know, um, Lenin lived, or somebody else in history, or Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar? What are the objective criteria? Now, New Testament scholar Gary lists five key criteria, noting that a historian who is able to apply one or more of the following principles to a text can conclude with greater confidence. And the more of these you can conclude, the greater confidence you can have that a, that a certain event occurred. Now, number one, let's have a look at these so you're familiar. If somebody challenges you. So historical claims are strong when they are supported by multiple and independent testimony. Independent sources. They need to be independent and there need to be multiple of them. That's one of the claims. The more of those you have, the stronger your claim is. Secondly, this is a good one. Historical claims are stronger when they are attested by your enemies. People who don't want it to be true. They, they wish it wasn't true, but it is, and they say so. Your claim is strengthened. And it's more likely to be authentic because, again, enemies are unsympathetic and often hostile, but they still often record the truth. Third, historical claims which are more authentic include embarrassing testimony. All the embarrassing parts aren't edited out. So if you've got things that make you look stupid and you're the author, it's probably true <laughs> because you're not trying to erase the 
embarrassing testimony. So you've got enemy attestation, you've got embarrassing testimony. Okay, another one, very important when you're investigating historical cases. And one of my friends, Jim Warner Wallace, who's a cold case detective, says, eyewitness testimony is important. Doesn't mean to say it's true, but you need to have eyewitness testimony. And fifth, historical claims which are supported by early testimony, closer to the event, are more reliable and are less likely to be the result of legendary embellishment. Does that make sense? So, this is good. If I can, mate, we've got the deal going here, mate. I'm glad that you're with it. Excellent, young man. So the facts surrounding the resurrection are of a historical nature and are available to anyone, anyone who would like and care to spend the time and examine the facts. Consequently, I want to make two points now. Next week, we're going to look at the meaning of the resurrection. That's a theological matter. You expect that because it's Easter next week, right? The next week is going to be the meaning of Easter. Today, we're going to look at the facts of the resurrection, which is a historical matter. It happened. It's a result. Now, I want to, if you don't get anything else that I say today, you need to get this. Whether or not Jesus rose from the dead is very straightforward. If Jesus was dead at point A and alive at point B, then the resurrection took place. Very simple. And guess what? We have enemy early attestation that both of these facts are true by non-Christians as well. We're going to look at those briefly. Now, no one has ever claimed that somebody rose from the dead days after being declared dead and then buried. But Jesus had the audacity to not only predict his death, but his resurrection many times. And here's a couple of examples. I could have given you dozens, but here's a couple. In Matthew 17, 22, the Bible says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Predictive. And predictive. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, if Jesus did not come out of a tomb, let me be really clear again, he would be clearly a false prophet and a liar. Correct? If he didn't. He could not be God, because God does not lie. And he could not be our saviour, because liars don't save people. Now let's take a look at this. Paul was really strong on this in 1 Corinthians. He says it really bluntly, and we forget this. We like to gloss over this as if, I don't really want to look at this, but I want us to look at this. If Christ, he says, in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 3, 15, has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, even worse, he says, then we are found to be false witnesses. We've been lying at the top of our lungs about God. Why? For we have testified about God that he did what? That he raised Christ from the dead. That's what we've been saying at the top of our lungs. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. That's another word for useless. 
And you are still in your sins. You're in big trouble. Now, perhaps no other fact surrounding the life of the historical Jesus is better attested historically than the death by crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Not only is the crucifixion account included in every gospel narrative, which you would expect, but this is the part that we often miss. Please pay attention to this, because this is what your friends need to know. It is also confirmed by non-Christian sources. And I'm just going to zip across the top tonight, uh, today. And these include people like the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, the Greek satirist Lucian Osamatasa, and as well as the Jewish Talmud. Now, they are not all friendly to us, let me tell you. It's like the South Africans, you know, supporting the All Blacks. Not likely to happen, okay? <laughs> now, Josephus tells us this, that Pilate, I quote, at the suggestion of the principal men among them, condemned him to the cross. There's Josephus recording Pilate's words, non-Christian, not friendly towards us at all, recording the fact that Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, condemned him to the cross. So from a perspective of historiography, Jesus' crucifixion meets the historical criteria of multiple, independent, and early sources, including enemy attestation. Here's a a super-uber-liberal who I don't like, John Dominic Crossan. He's a non-Christian scholar and the co-founder of a heretical group called the Jesus Seminar. And even he says this, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. So even our enemies agree that. Second, even critics that agree, agree that his tomb was also found empty days after the dead body was put there. Now, I want you to take a little note here because if you engage this conversation with some of your friends, you're going to get some what we call objections thrown at you. They're all surface deep and there's a stack of information on that, but I'm going to fly over the top. Some common attempts that you may hear to try and explain Jesus' empty tomb. Five quick theories that you may hear. I want you to hear him here first before you hear him at school, okay? Or at church, uh, at work, or at uni. The first one is well, it really wasn't Jesus that died on the cross. Sure, somebody died. There's too much historical evidence. But somebody else died there in his place. Islam, for example, so all your Muslim friends, what they think is that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but. And that's because Allah would never have allowed one of his prophets to die so awfully and so shamefully. But instead, Allah caused someone else to look like Jesus. You know, they're kind of like stooges. You know, someone else like Jesus. And this person was crucified by mistake. Let me tell you, if I was that person, I'd be yelling my head off. You got the wrong guy! (laughs) Right? Now, some Muslims, by the way, just a small sidebar, I believe it was Judas who was crucified. So don't be thrown if you hear that. Why is this view stupid and wrong? Well, number one, there's no evidence for that. For a start, if it was your son, how could Jesus' mother have mistooken that guy for, for her son? Or his closest friends? 
who were there. Is it reasonable, even implausible, that they wouldn't know that the person on the cross wasn't him? Of course not. Those who knew him best watched him die painfully. They had no doubt it was him. And again, as I say, if it, if it had been a switcheroo, the guy that was going there would have been yelling his head off because nobody wanted to be crucified by mistake. Oh, you got the wrong guy. And also, by the way, consider the penalty of the Romans who crucified if it was the wrong person. The penalty would be death for anybody who executed capital punishment that wasn't authorized. In other words, they did it by mistake. The men who buried him had no doubt. So anyone who believes otherwise is denying eyewitness testimony, not only from our sources, but from non-Christian sources, and of a large group of people. Enemy attestation. People who wanted them dead, the Jews, boy, they wanted them dead. They made sure he was dead. Pilate, the soldiers, it was truly Jesus who died on that cross. Now the next view is some people say, oh, well, Jesus only fainted on the cross. You may hear that. He fainted. You know, faked it and fainted. Why is this view wrong? This view that he says, on the cross he passed out. And everyone, friends and foe alike, including trained soldiers who had done this well over 100,000 times in those days. Crucifixion was really common, more common than beheadings in France. This would say that friends and foe alike, including trained soldiers and his enemies, they also knew he was dead. And after he was buried in the tomb, the view says he revived somehow, don't know how, found his disciples who mistakenly believed he'd been resurrected. That's what they think in that theory. Why is it wrong? Well, let's consider a few things. Firstly, before the cross. In typical Roman fashion, Jesus was beaten. And by the way, how many lashes did he take? Thank you. Why was it 39? 40 would kill him by law. They'd done this so many times they had that precision art. This is perfected art. That's why it was 39. So he's been whipped. And the whip, I won't go into all the details because there's young fellows here too. But basically, let me tell you this, your spine and internal organs would likely be starting to fall out. Just like a gutted fish. It's horrid, but it's the truth. Cut through capillaries, veins, blood loss. Many people actually died, and, and, and they knew, 39 was about right, but people actually did die from the beating before they even got there. And then you've all been up through six illegal trials, well, you go that, your body's so damaged, weakened, you couldn't even carry the crossbar, and that's this part. It's not good thinking and not good history to think that he carried the whole cross. He didn't. That's not the way Romans did it. He did carry the big crossbar. So it will be like one of those dirty great big railway sleepers, okay? Weighed approximately 57 kilograms. Okay. And he was beaten up so badly that he couldn't even carry the crossbar. Remember, he fell down. And who did the grab to help him? Simon of Cyrene. Remember? Okay. So that was before. And then on the cross, the, the Romans used procedures that were designed to ensure that the condemned person would die. Because the boys wanted to go home at night, you know, not hang around, let's get seven done with. They've done this many, many times. And if they didn't die soon enough, what did they do? They break their legs. But as we know, Scripture prophesied not a bone of his body will be broken, but instead be pierced for our iniquities. We'll go later. No longer able to raise his body to breathe, death quickly followed. Now, one of the trusted sources that I use a lot is the Mayo Clinic. You know what that is? It's a very high-end medical clinic in the United States. 
Now, Dr. William D. Edwards of the Mayo Clinic is one of many who studied the death of Jesus and concluded, anyone who believes Jesus did not die on the cross is at odds with modern medical knowledge. There's much more. You can go search it and Google it and look at all the peer-reviewed medical journal articles that have been done on the death of Christ. Nobody argues he didn't die. Experienced soldiers familiar with crucifixion were so certain of the death that they didn't even follow the routine procedure of breaking his legs. And Pilate was so surprised to hear that Jesus had already died, he asked the Romans, Oi, go back and check to be sure that he's truly dead. And Pilate refused to release his body until he got confirmation from his guys that he was actually dead. Now to grasp how absolutely sure people were that Jesus was dead, consider... On top of all that, in preparing the body for the burial, the Jews covered it with around about two uh, with spices equal to two bags of cement, about 50 kilograms of, uh, of um, spices, wrapped it in the linen strips and placed it inside the sealed tomb. Someone say that's a little bit suffocating. By the way, that also is... Now, I don't know, but one thing I do know in my lifetime, the Shroud of Turin came up. They found the shroud. Many of you know about it. What I do know is this. I don't know. I'm not saying it is or it isn't the shroud that, that covered Christ. But the more scientific investigation we do, the harder it looks that it's a forgery. That's all I am saying. I'm not saying I'm there yet. But the more knowledge we have, it lends the other way rather than the other way. So... Now, what if Jesus had survived, one of your mates says. Let's suppose it for a minute true. Try answering this question. How did you manage to unwrap yourself and get out of those grave cloths with 50 kilograms worth of stuff and all you know, wrapped around you? This isn't in your notes. How did he move away the huge stone? How did he manage to elude the Roman guards? How did he find his disciples? How could he have convinced his disciples that he had risen from the dead? He'd have been barely alive. And his body would have been a bloody mess. How would have a man in such a condition inspire the disciples? Reasonably, come on. Reasonably, how could that happen? And why did the disciples die? Almost all suffering horrendous deaths, still claiming he rose from the dead. A couple of good questions there, eh? Now, next one. Why is this wrong? Consider other accounts. I like the Roman historian Phallus. He wrote about the darkness. This is a non-Christian. He's not our friend, remember? He's enemy. He wrote about the darkness that fell upon the land during his crucifixion. You can read that from non-biblical sources. Another Roman historian, Phlegon, wrote this. Sounds like a, be a great thing for spray, eh? Phlegon. Goodbye. <laughs> Listen to what he said. This guy is not ours. He says, Jesus arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed his hands and he'd been pierced by nails. That's not our guy. Enemy attestation. That's one. There's many others. They wrote matter-of-factly about Christ's death. They weren't believers. They had no reason to report um, something they did not believe was true. So this is solid fact based upon enemy testimony, whether friend or foe, and proven by the standards of modern um, medical evidence. You can look much deeper into that, into that book. I recommend it. Next one. This is, a, this is a common one. Ah, well, yep, sure. I think the reason why the disciples changed is they had a mass hallucination. You're going to hear that. In other words, they were dreaming. 
They were, they were imagining things. Why is this wrong? Well, normally a hallucination lasts for a short time. That's what medical science tells us today. But the disciples saw Jesus for long stretches on at least 12 different occasions over a 40-day period. The disciples saw him in bodily form. They saw the scars, touched him. Remember that guy whose name was? Yeah, unless I see that. I, uh, I'm from Missouri, you know, and Missouri, they will show me. <laughs> show me. That's what they said. And they talked with him, they listened to him, they ate with him for more than a month. Now their conviction, you put yourself in that position, one of those disciples, if you had seen that, no, I don't care what you do. Where do I sign up? Do what you like. I'm not denying this. Do what you like. Their conviction was so strong that he rose from them, they did not ever fade over time, but they stayed with them the rest of their lives. And almost all of them, bar John, died as martyrs. You can go today to Rome where Paul had his head whipped off in the Mamertine prison. You can go there and see that place today. And almost all of them died. It doesn't explain the empty tomb and the hallucinations would not have been evidence that Jesus was alive, but it will be evidence that he was dead, right? Because it was just a figment of their imagination. And by the way, you don't have group hallucinations, not even on LSD. Because you were seeing one thing and you were seeing someone else and you were seeing someone else and you were seeing someone else. You all see the same thing. That's no hallucination. Next one. Here's a favorite one that you're going to hear. Well, yep, the tomb was empty, but that's because somebody stole the body. Well, moved him. Now, there are several small obstacles that for anybody wanting to move Jesus' body would have had to overcome. Number one, Pilate had ordered the tomb sealed and guarded. With a seal, Remember? Now, if the Romans guards, imagine a moment that you are the Roman guard. You blow this, you're dead. This is not some, oh, well, sharp if you want to. You blow it, you're dead. You're executed. That comes, comes with the territory. Your job is to guard this tomb. The seal over the stone, uh, over the tomb, was a whacking stone. The penalty for breaking, anybody breaking that seal was crucifixion by death. We know this from history because the Romans took grave robbing exceedingly seriously. Fourth, a massive stone in front of the, in front of the tomb, scientists calculate weighing between one and a half and two tons would have to be moved. It's very big. And then, of course, you've got your old enemies, those Jewish leaders. They were glad that Jesus was dead and buried and they lacked the motive to move the body. And the disciples, well, they were a bunch of cowards, to be honest. Actually, the women have my utmost admiration. They were the ones, even mum, who stood at the cross and saw it all happen. John was there too, but the rest of them were a bunch of wusses. They beggared off. They were terrified. They were in hiding, thinking about their own skin. And by the way, that mass hallucination does not account for hard-nosed Brutal guys like Paul was before he was converted. Skeptics who testified to having seen the risen Lord. And let's not forget Jesus' his own brother. Before he never had a bar of it. Afterwards, that guy became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He said, do what you want. I believe. After the resurrection. It was a resurrection that sealed the deal. Number five and finally. The resurrection you're going to hear was a conspiracy plot. 
you know, something like this. And it goes like, well, Jesus um, came up with an elaborate scheme to fulfill messianic prophecies, including his own death. He planned it all. And the co-conspirators would get his body after it was taken down, then nurse, it back, nurse Jesus back to health. And after recovering, Jesus would claim he'd been resurrected. You're going to hear this. Why is this for you, view wrong? Well, consider this. Can you influence what tribe you were born in, what place you were born in, what year you were born in? All clearly predicted 700 years before. You can't do that. Could you arrange miracles? Who would be willing to pretend to a blind from birth? So they have to pretend since we're a baby, all the way through until they're older people, or had or were lame, and sit by pools for years and years and years and years and years, just faking this, remember? Yeah, just as a big setup. And, or if they had leprosy and they were healed. Who would believe them if they did? It's entirely the result, that thought, of somebody's imaginative and wishful thinking and has no basis in fact. Now we'll take a short look at some of the facts that support the historical, physical resurrection of Jesus. And even, remember this, even very sceptical people admit the evidence shows that the tomb of Jesus was found to be empty. So we've got secular sources saying he died, and we've even got secular sources saying it was empty. It was definitely empty. It happened within a few days. Romans and the Jews who wanted them dead did not want a resurrection, were telling us it was empty. So Jesus' followers, both men and women, said the same thing. And if it hadn't been, why did the Jews and Romans enter the tomb and just, hang on, here's the body? That would have, Christianity would never got off the ground. All they had to do was produce a body. And let me tell you, they had resources with a capital R to find them. The Jews and the Romans. It wasn't there, it wasn't anywhere. So, how did the Jews explain this? The Jewish leaders said that the disciples cooked up a story and came during the night and stole the body. In fact, we read about that in Matthew 28. While the woman ran away, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So, first the Jewish leaders. Next the disciples said Jesus was resurrected. Whose explanation is correct? And here's a couple of questions to help you decide. Why just days after the resurrection would the disciples start boldly at the top of their lungs claiming a preposterous story that they did not believe? Why would they do that? These men have been hiding, terrified, afraid for their lives. Why would suddenly something happen as a catalyst to, to encourage them to put their lives on the line for preaching this in the middle of Jerusalem? This is not a long way from the action. That's a smack in the middle of where it happened. Where it could have easily been disproven, because just yank out the body. Here's the proof. He's, he's not dead. He's, 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 he's not alive. He's dead. How can you explain him? This is a really tough one. This is a, this is a, goal, a silver bullet. 
How can you explain the fact that a large number of Jewish priests, who for hundreds of years this would have been a heresy, became Christians and believed Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead within a short time after he was crucified? Notice this next verse. So the word of the God spread. The word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That is tough in the middle of Jerusalem. Perhaps the best explanation is that the Jewish leaders and the disciples were telling the truth, that the tomb of Jesus was empty and Jesus truly had been raised. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke and John testify that the men and women were personally had personally seen the body, the risen body. They'd seen the nail scars, the feet marks, or the Roman spear pieced aside. Otherwise, there was no evidence that he'd even been crucified. He was not in a weakened condition, and his body was not a bloody mess. Remember, he'd been seen on 12 separate occasions by up to 500 people at once, where Paul said, if you don't believe me, go check in one of these guys. That's a pretty audacious claim. And he did miracles. Acts 1 3 says, After his suffering on the cross and the resurrection, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs. He's an evidentialist. Here's the proof that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom. I'd be, I wouldn't be going to sleep. I'd be right at his feet the whole time. You see that? It changes your life. Luke reported that within weeks of the crucifixion, thousands of Jews in Jerusalem converted to belief in Jesus. They believed Jesus was the Son of God because of the resurrection. Easy to claim it, hard to deliver on it. The Bible says in Acts 4.4, But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men alone grew to 5,000, and these were Jews. This is a complete flip-flop. Soon there were about 5,000 Jews, Christian men and women, including many priests in the city. Acts 6, 7 says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples increased, and the rapidly and the large number of priests came obedient to faith. So why did that happen so quickly? How can you explain that? Why in Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism? So think about what it would have taken for a Jew to follow Jesus. He'd have to be utterly convinced that Jesus was a promised Messiah and that he was God and that he had been risen from the dead. You ain't swapping your deal until you know that for sure. Once you see that, you got me. If I see that, I'm in. Where do I sign? Especially after refusing to believe, why would all these Jews suddenly change their mind? You have to some, have some evidential proof. Why would some of you now be convinced that Jesus had been raised unless they were certain? Because let me tell you, I've got a lot of friends who are Jews, and one thing I know about them, they're blimping stubborn. <laughs> they are stubborn. And they need evidence, as would you, as would me. They got it and they moved. Something unusual, something spectacular must have happened. Maybe something like somebody raised from the dead. Maybe that was it. <laughs> Short, quickly, a short list of disciples who were martyred for preaching Jesus was the Son of God. Peter and Andrew and Simon were all crucified. Matthew was killed by the sword. Mark, it's horrible to say, but in those days were pretty brutal, was dragged to death by horses through the streets of Alexandria in Egypt for not giving this up. Luke died by hanging. James the Greater was beheaded. James the Just was thrown down from a pinnacle of the temple after refusing to know Jesus. Thaddeus, or sometimes known as Jude, was shot with arrows. 
Thomas was run through by a spear in India and his basilica is still there in the south part of India today. And Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was whipped to death in Armenia, not recanting. And Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Well, I don't suppose it makes much difference if he did, but that's the case. So why would these men die agonizing deaths unless they knew for certain what they believed was true? And we only have 70, 80 years here, so what's that compared to eternity? Who cares what you do to me? It's light and momentary compared to all of eternity. If they had any doubt that Jesus was raised, surely one of them would have changed their story and saved his own hide. You talk to any detectives, conspiracies are hard to keep when you have multiple people because one of them will eventually break. The more you have, the more unlikely it is. Now, as we wrap this up, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ has certainly convinced many people. I could list you dozens upon dozens of people, classical people, quality people, literally qualified people like C.S. Lewis. I want to pick one other guy, though, who is more the, uh, who was a famously successful defense attorney. You can find him in the Guinness Book of Records. It cites him for having the most successive acquittals. Actually, he got 245 successive acquittals. He's a very famous lawyer. And this is what he said about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He says, and I quote, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I am still in active practice. I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. I could have given you many more. Many who initially refused to accept the resurrection have become convinced of its historicity and accepted Jesus as Lord. So in the light of evidence, what sort of questions, what, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that Jesus was crucified and died on the Roman cross. Secular sources agree to that. Don't even waste your time, guys, getting in arguing with with schoolboy arguments like, well, you don't even know Jesus existed. My first question to them, have you, what evidence do you have for that? Because if they just care to scratch the surface, no serious historian, by the way, let me qualify that, anybody with a PhD in history will ever disagree with that. It's ridiculous. So don't even get, go down, don't waste your time. So Jesus was crucified and died on the Roman cross. We have that through secular sources and enemy sources as well, not just our own. He was embalmed in the linen and the spices. He was buried in a tomb that was sealed and guarded. And you can build this case from non-biblical sources. Days later, that tomb was found empty. Their lives were permanently changed, the disciples, by their conviction that he rose from the dead. They preached this in Jerusalem right away, right after this happened. And many Jews became believers. And some of you keep it up. This is great. Not one of the disciples ever recanted his belief that Jesus was raised. And most of them died as martyrs for their faith. Who was the exception to that? Good. Man, you guys are listening. This is good. Okay. So in the light of the evidence, here's the questions we should ask skeptics. What happened 
in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that so changed the disciples they were willing to die for their belief in the resurrection. And so much so that it converted Jews. And so much so that you wind the clock a bit more forward and in Christianity went from a guy who'd hardly travelled anywhere from a, 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 a nondescript village ended up changing the entire world. If Jesus was dead at point A and alive at point B, we have a resurrection. The resurrection is one of the most verifiable historical events in antiquity. And if the resurrection is true, then there is great hope that our deaths do not serve as the end to our history. There's life after death. That's a great question. You can start asking your people, well, what do you think happens after you die? That's a very inoffensive question. People will actually talk about that. But the exciting news is, is that because Jesus died and rose, we also have the hope of a resurrection if you have faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, guys, you want to pop on up? We're going to do things a little differently today. Okay, guys, if you want to take a seat, and what I'd like you to do is just around in your groups, let's think about this as if it's maybe next week. Let's think about this week coming, okay? And I want you to just share, and amongst your group, maybe three of those objections that you've heard to the resurrection. What are those three? And then the next, so you need to share them among the ones that you've heard, you know, and how's that's come up, maybe even how you've handled it. And then lastly, if you're to have a discussion about the bodily resurrection of Jesus based on today, what points, feel free to share it with the group, what points do you think you need to do a little bit more research on to comfortably discuss these things, especially the resurrection, with an interested person at work or your neighbour or somebody in your family. Okay, so there it is, and I'll come around, we'll visit, and then I'll get somebody to share some of those things soon. Thanks. So guys, what I'm trying to get at is this week, is we're coming up on Easter, and somebody just may say to you, because remember, this is the core of the gospel, if Christ did not rise, your faith is in vain. And so let's just say two questions to make it really simple. How do you know, the guy at work says, or the gal at uni says, how do you know Jesus died? Are you ready to respond to that? Because this is the guts of the gospel. And then once you get past that one, that somebody else in your group needs to pick up and own the thing. Well, okay, you made a good case for him dying. Can you make a good case for him rising? That he was resurrected. You see what I'm saying? So that's the sort of answer I'm going to need for you. How do you know he died? And how do you know he resurrected? And how would you say that to your friends? Okay, a few more minutes. Thanks. One or two of you might want to um, get ready to give some results. Okay, who would like to share um, something from their table about this week when somebody says, how do you know that Jesus died? Can you see it? Who's got that one first? Winnie, do I see your hand? I saw your hand. Winnie? Oh my gosh, really? (laughs) (laughs) 
now we just had a conversation around um, you know when when in when you talk to other people and they question um, Jesus and it's it's all about the medical background of it you know someone can't really die and then be dead for three days and just raise from the dead with all the wounds healed and, and in the condition that Jesus was that he died in so it's just proving that that must be from somewhere or someone higher than ourselves who, who performed that miracle and in no no other religion there's in anybody that actually was dead or died and rose from the dead. Fantastic. So what is one secular source you can quote and send people towards to go down? The, if, you, if you choose a medical route, we, we're going to send them if you want to go that way. Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic, okay? I've given you one source there. You guys are, there's more brains in this place than can sink a battleship. But I'm, I'm just pointing you in the right direction. If you want to drill nine miles deep, you go to the Habermas's document, okay, on the resurrection. Okay, anybody else like to share some thought? That's the medical route. Anything else? Yeah, over here. Thanks, Ben. Why oh, just here? Can I'm just, five, four, three, two. His tomb is still a witness in the Holy Land. Yes. His tomb. Yes. And as you were saying this morning, there's still the shroud. Oh the, yeah. The, the clock. Okay, good. Sure. Um, well, if it's um, if you're talking to somebody that was Islamic, yeah, they are followers of the Prophet Muhammad. Correct. He died mm -hmm. and never rose again. No. And Jesus died and he rose again mm. and he roamed the earth for forty days. Correct. And he was seen of the disciples when he was taken up in the cloud. Yeah. So there's much, much proof. Yeah, one of the interesting things historically, which I actually I should shush until somebody else says something. Uh, well, one, one more on the death. Where are you going to go with that? Oh, shush, shush. Mr. Philip, speak up, sir. Uh, outside sources. So such the, as? Such as uh, Tacitus and Josephus and Phlegon. Tacitus, Josephus. Don't forget those names. If nothing else, it makes you sound very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Josephus, let's say it, Josephus. Okay, you can get his book. It's called The Antiquities of the Jews. I have that in my collection. You can go read it. Read what he said. Remember, he's not our friend. He's a Jew who did not want this to happen, but he wrote it down in The Antiquities of the Jews. You can go read what he said about Jews. Somebody else, Tacitus, Phlegon, Phlegon, remember? Phlegon, ping. Remember? Phlegon, you remember that, Daniel. <laughs> go ahead. All right. Anything else? Oh, I saw you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So historical evidence. We Christians are evidentialists. We're Christians because it's true, not because it works for us. It's the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except him. Okay. Last part, and then we're done. The resurrection. Who'd like to share a little bit about, well, how do we know Jesus rose? How are we going to get that across to our friends, family, or colleagues? Down here? Is it? Mikey. <laughs> Mikey. <laughs> From the Bible. <laughs> you could go that route, but some people aren't ready to accept the Bible. That's a whole other message. Well, we can approach it in a way of there's a lot of eyewitnesses for it. 
And if you look at the Bible as a historical piece of evidence, then those are all eyewitnesses. So yeah, there you go. Okay, you could do that. Depends upon where they are on the scale. If they're open to using the Bible as a historical document, which many Christians don't even realize what we've got, it is a very attest. It is the most attestable document from antiquities that there is, that there is. And the Dead Sea Scrolls was the key that unlocked everything for us. That was only found in 1947. Who said that? Right, ten points. 1947. Okay. What's another angle we can go off? If we exclude the Bible, and then we're going to go after that, Ben, we're going to go to Jacques. Okay, after money. So uh, the thing that really stood out for me was, is the, um, was, was the sudden change in the disciples' hearts and the explosion right. of Christianity that we saw uh, very, very quickly after that. And I think, as we've said today, is, is that uh, people would only be that bold and that confident if they had... Um, had that personal experience themselves and were absolutely convinced of that proof. Yeah. Question, who's the hardest people to convince in your life? Who? Your family, right? Who was the head of the church in Jerusalem? James, who was? The brother of Jesus. Man, I reckon James would have given his brother beans beforehand. I mean, he would. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Your brother says he's God? Flipping Nick. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you see that, I was going to say blighter, but you know what I mean? Rise! You got my attention. Do you see what I'm saying? It was so cataclysmic, the upheaval, that the church in Jerusalem, in a very short time, had half a million people in it. Cataclysmic, so much so that it upended the Roman Empire. How did that happen? Something happened, right? Now, don't forget, I heard somebody around here saying, Don't forget, you can pop it on them. What did happen, friend? Can you explain that? How do you think that happened? And let them hang themselves, paint themselves into a corner because they run out of options pretty quickly. Uh, Mr. Jacques had some thoughts. Um, so that was basically where we were going. Okay. <laughs> was, yeah, okay. Um, that there was there was obviously something very significant that happened around that time because we even have our calendar kind of split around there. So there's something significant must have happened there. So what could that have been? Excellent. Anybody else like to add? Thank you, Jacques. Excellent point. Anybody else? Yes, over here, Mr. Gerard, et al. and family. <laughs> the testimony of that lawyer. Lionel Lucknow. Sir Lionel Lucknell. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, that, that's to me, is a pretty powerful testimony yeah. because he's not coming at it as a Christian. He's coming at, coming at it as a lawyer to say, you know, based on his experience. Uh, and he, that means he's looking at it through his lawyer lens to say the evidence is solid. And that, mm. to me, is quite telling. Good. Um, one other person who I would commend to you, if those of you are good evidentialists, I'm an evidentialist. I'm a very practical guy. Show me. A guy by the name of J. Warner Wallace, who has just written something called um, Cold Case Christianity. In fact, he just solved a, um, a case which will be on Dateline next week. Um, he was a hard out. He only knew two types. He was a cop for many years. His dad was a cop. And he only knew two types of Christians. 
the Christians that were in the cop force who could tell you 10 reasons why they thought that guy was guilty and they were good detectives, but when he asked them about their Christian faith, he couldn't tell them one reason why they thought Jesus um, was the only son of God. They couldn't tell him. And then the other type of Christian that he met were those that he was throwing in jail. So either way, he didn't want to use them. He said, the guys who are at work who claim the Christians, who can't give me any reasons, why should I listen to them? And the guys that claim the Christians, I'm throwing them in jail, why should I listen to them? But that guy came to Christ because of what? He applied his cold case detective skills to the evidence, and he is well researched. I do, I have great regard for people who chase the truth to the very end and anchor it in solid fact. I have great regard for him. I do not have high regard for um, a whole bunch of emotion not drilled into concrete that's solid and sustainable. This guy is a cold case detective in Saul's cases, and he applied those same cases to Christianity, and he has become the, one of the most hard-out proponents of Christianity based on the evidence, based on the truth that he discovered. Don't forget, we serve a God who defines reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together today as a family. Thank you, Lord, that our faith is anchored in you, who, Father, define truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that no man comes to the Father except through you. Today, as we remember you as you came into Jerusalem on that donkey, and people were so fickle, they waved the palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. And yet a week later, they wanted you dead. But Lord, you came because you loved us and you wanted to spend eternity with us. You, want, you made us to live for eternity. Help us to never forget that and to always value you above everything. There is no equal. You have no equal, Lord. And for that, we are truly grateful. And all of God's people thankfully said, Amen. God bless your family. Have a great week and we look forward to seeing you next week. You can stay for a chat or have another bit of coffee or whatever you need to do. Have a great week. God bless.